Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 52nd episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. Good morning, Mark. It's a Friday. It's been a, a good week for us. Yep, it has been a good week. Uh, we're recording this a little uh, a little late because just we were out of the office uh, traveling and stuff um, for work. So um, sorry, we're getting out uh, this episode a day late, but 50 seconds. So a full year, full, full year. year podcast today. It just Next thing yeah. we know, we start at number one, and here we are. Yeah, I know. I know. Kelly, uh, who used to work with us, uh, asked if we were going to do anything special, and I was like, I'll give you a shout-out, but we're just going to keep doing our normal thing. <laughs> <laughs> we're um, creatures of habit. We, we just We literally enjoy doing this. Yeah. I don't view this as work. You don't view this as work. It allows us to communicate to our clients, potential clients, um, educate those that are do-it-yourselfers. You know, this is just, I think, a great venue for us to share a lot of our experience and knowledge. Yeah, well, I think it all started that, you know, that's what happened. Me and you, we obviously talk about this stuff all the time. And we were like, you know, why don't we just let people listen to it? Yeah, type of thing. absolutely. So, so, yeah, so it's been cool. Yeah, it's been really cool. So, um, but anyways, getting back to it, we will take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on June 25th, and the data is from Coifin. The S&P 500 index is up 1.3% for the month, down 4.46% for the year. The Dow is up 1.43% for the month, down 9.63% for the year. The NASDAQ up 4.42% for the month and up 10.44% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 1.12% for the month and down 15.22% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, is up 4.45% for the month and down 11.08% for the year. Three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.16%. The two-year Treasury yielding 0.18%, and the 10-year Treasury yield is sitting at 0.67%. Um, so moving on to big news and headlines, uh, current events from the week. Coronavirus cases are on the rise, Matt. Um, but I guess the question I have for you, is this due to the economy reopening again? Is it due to the protests that we've had where people are on top of each other? Or is it due to there's more testing out there and more people are getting tested or is it a combination of all three? Yeah, I think this is a de definitely a, a heated topic right yeah. now, a debate. I'm more on readily available testing yeah. because, you know, if you watch the news and you saw how many massive protests there were across the U.S. and these things were just recent and supposedly it could take up to two weeks. So I just highly doubt that, you know, person went to a protest a day later, went and took a test as positive. Right. So in my opinion, I think this is just readily available testing. And if we can continue to get along like this, I know it's it's not perfect, but with I'm not a professional on this, but herd immunity, we, we got to get things going out there. Yeah. And if you're higher, if you're more vulnerable, 
Um, in whatever circumstances that might be, you need to take extra precautions. Um, but my two cents is, you know, the government can only afford so much uh, stimulus. Right. Right. Exactly. And yeah. so this and is, I think they've already been pretty clear that they're not going to completely shut everything down again. Yeah. It's just not it's not a realistic option. Right. I think, unless right. things are extremely bad. Right. Okay. Right. Um, there was a little news, Matt, on I believe it was Monday night um, that trade with China was potentially off. Yes, the table. Yes. but then it you was and I were back traveling on. at the time. Yeah, we were. We were in baggage claim. Yeah, right. And then <laughs> and we, we got get that the news, and by the time we had our rental car, it was back on. Yeah, yeah. So that just shows you how either something can get taken out of context, or just you know the the speed of the news that's delivered um is kind of crazy to me but well it's like we're almost in an environment mark where you got to be first but not right when it comes to the media right and you know you got to be careful as an investor trading on that type of philosophy yeah yeah so exactly. that's that's the word of caution and now a lot of people that are listening to this podcast right now aren't trading futures in the evening mm -hmm. but if you are there's a lot of people that got burned on Monday night. Oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. But it looks like everything's fine and everything's still intact. So um, we will continue to update everybody if something changes with that. Uh, Q2 closes out next week, Matt. Do you want to say anything on that? No, I just want to remind listeners that what tends to happen at the end of every quarter is something that we call in the industry window dressing. So what window dressing is, is that a lot of actively managed funds, pension funds, uh, hedge funds, they have to report their holdings as of the end of every quarter, not during the quarter. So what this means is things that tend to do well during the quarter tend to get bought at the end of the quarter, just so people, when they report their holdings, they could appear to look smart and say, well, I owned XYZ and look, it did well this quarter, mm -hmm. where in factuality, they may have just bought it two or three days before the end of the quarter. So we call it window dressing and you tend to have a pump up in things that did good for the quarter. Again, this doesn't happen every quarter, but it tends to be a theme. And so I want to introduce that concept to our listeners. Window dressing, end of the quarter, you could see that. Yeah, yeah. And typically, or at least the past few years, um, you know, me just looking at the markets, we tend to get a little push into earnings season um, that with the expectation that companies are going to do well, just because we've been in an environment for the past few years that it's been, um, you know, just a good environment for companies to report. Um, so I think the benchmarks for a lot of companies, benchmarks meaning the analyst expectations have been a little bit low. Mm -hmm. And so it's allowed companies to kind of surprise when they report yeah, to the upside. So just keep that in mind. So yeah, end of the end of the quarters next Tuesday at four o'clock. Yep. And then some states have been freezing their reopenings, Matt, such as Texas. Um, and all that I know about this to, to this point is that they're not moving backwards, but they're not moving forwards. They're kind of just in a holding pattern of not, you know, allowing more capacity at restaurants, for example, or and things like that. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see with the rise in case counts, you know, how that affects other states as well. Yeah, I mean, my two cents, once again, I'm not a professional in this area, right. but on the surface, it appears to be a smart decision. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be going back. Maybe you take a pause and then yeah. move forward when it's when it's when it's when you think it's proper right, to do right. so. And I would imagine that some states are going to follow suit here within the next couple of days. So we'll keep an eye on that as well. Yep. 
So moving on to tweets, articles, and research for the week that caught our eyes. Uh, I'll start, Matt. Had a couple notes. One was from Freddie Mac on June 22nd, and uh, it was titled, The Cost of Money Went Down. During during the seven years that the Fed kept short-term interest rates near zero between December 16th of 08 and December 16th of 2015, the average interest rate on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage fell from 5.47% to 3.95%. Do you have any comment on that? No, I mean, I think that what's going to happen at some point is, you know, these mortgage rates are really going to start putting a lot of money in consumers' pockets. Mm-hmm. As, you know, there's been a, you know, a big move for people to refinance over this past year. I mean, like another big trend, right? And I think that savings, people are able to get equity out of their house. They do home upgrades. You can look at all these trends for the consumer. Where are they spending that money? And, you know, that could lead to some profitable trades. Right, exactly. And when we talk about the cost of money, that's what we mean, right? The cost to borrow money is cheaper. Correct, sir. Yeah. So your payment goes down, allows you to upgrade, buy a bigger house, take out some more equity, do that bathroom or that kitchen upgrade that you Mm -hmm. wanted. And all that stuff just feeds the American economy. Right, exactly. So I just thought that was interesting. And obviously, since 2015, um, mortgage rates have continued to fall. So. Um, the second point I had was from the Federal Reserve on June 22nd, and uh, this is what they said. From the end of 2008 to the end of 2010, the Fed digitally created $1.4 trillion of new money that was used to purchase treasury bonds as part of its quantitative easing program. From Thursday, March 12th of 2020 through Friday, June 12th of 2020, the Fed digitally created 2.9 trillion of new money that was used to purchase treasury bonds and corporate bonds. That's, That's pretty- a lot of um, money that got uh, digitally printed on a computer with a couple clicks. Yeah, exactly. And more than the 1.4 trillion that happened over a span of two years, this just happened over a span of three months. So again, it's just in incredibly interesting to me just to see how much power and ammunition the fed actually has if if they need to use it to be able to stimulate things and and um execute on their mandates my two cents is just the massive amount of liquidity they injected to the system you know i think people up to this point uh let me rephrase that i think a lot of people have underestimated the tailwind that it created, especially for stocks. Right. And you have a lot of, I'm gonna throw it out there, and I won't name names, legendary hedge fund managers that got this dead wrong. And there's a lot of them that had to come out over the past couple of weeks and acknowledge that fact. Right. Because they were so vocal um, back in March that this sucker, you know, i.e. the market, was gonna keep going down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just adds to the old adage which is you don't fight the Fed. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I totally agree. So, um, it's they have just deeper gonna, pockets than you do. <laughs> yeah, that goes to everyone, <laughs> anyone listening to this podcast. I don't yeah, care how rich a good, you are. It's a good way to say it. It's a good way to say it. 
Um, the last thing I had, Matt, that I wanted to share with listeners, it'll be on our show notes on our, our website. So if you go to jessupwealthmanagement.com, hover over the podcast tab and click show notes, you should see this graph. And it's a, uh, a research piece. Uh, the graphic came from, from Fidelity and it shows the share of individual, individual investors who sold all of their equity holdings. And this data was collected from February 20th to May 15th. And it uh, separates it based on age group. This scares me. So ages 60 to 64, a little more than 25% of the people that have money on Fidelity's website sold all their stock exposure. Between 65 and 69, that increases to about 31%. And 70 and older increase to about 32%. And if you put all of the age groups together, about 17, 18% of all the people on Fidelity's site sold all of their stock exposure. This scares me. Yeah, it does. It does for me too, because I feel like a lot of these people haven't gotten back in yet. And I'm not saying it's the right time or the wrong time too, but eventually over the long term, what's your strategy? Right. Yeah. What's your strategy? Because by the time that you emotionally feel comfortable, it's usually too late. Right. You know, the other thing that comes to mind is this, you know, we both been in the business for a solid period of time. And when there are people out there that think, well, I don't want to hire a professional because that professional is going to cost X. I'm going to do this on my own. And then an individual makes a decision to completely sell out. They don't have a strategy to get back in. It's like all of a sudden that fee, that annual fee that that advisor wanted to charge seems pretty insignificant when you look at the move off of the March 23rd bottom. Right. So at the end of the day, you know, if you're working with a good professional and they are justifying their fee. It could be worth it, people. Yeah, it could be worth it. And if you don't have an advisor, that's fine, but have a plan at least. That's right. Have rules of when you're going to sell and when you're going to buy. And if X happens, then I'll do you know uh, one. Or if B happens, then I'll do two. You know, it's just when when you make emotional decisions. Like, and I'm not saying all of the, this selling was emotional, but I would significant in my opinion, portion. I, I'm sure there's a significant portion of people based. that it was fear based. It was fear based. So. Just thought that that was interesting. That's so. great. I mean, and again, you know, I think for those who have sold out, I would use this as a learning opportunity. Mm-hmm. And the thing I always tell people is there's always going to be opportunities out there. Right. So, you know, so if my if the phone were to ring right after this podcast and it was a referral from the client who said, um, you know, in hindsight so far, I made a mistake. I sold out sometime in March. You know, there's always going to be opportunities to get back into the market. But you got to have a game plan to do it. Right. Right. Okay. Um, I got a couple things, Mark, if it's okay. First thing I got is a note from Blackstone. Okay. Now, Blackstone is uh, primarily a private equity firm. And so you want to take just 30 seconds and explain what private equity is for listeners? Yeah. So uh, private equity is, um, you know, you have a a group of investors per se that go and take a company, um, for example, that's that's public and they take it private. Right. So they take it off the, the public market. So everyone just can't go on, you know, the NYSE or the NASDAQ and buy shares of it anymore. Um, so this has happened several times. An example of this uh, for a well-known company was Panera Bread. They used to be uh, 
part of a, a public offering and it was publicly able to be traded, they got taken private. Um, and usually this happens, um, you know, I can, I can rabbit hole for a long time sure. about this, but, um, it's, it uses a lot of leverage. So they bought, they borrow the money to take the company private, to pay the money, to take the company private. And then they try to, uh, make it as efficient as possible and then sell it and make money on that. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of the ins and the outs at a very, very high basic level of, of private equity. And it tends to be what we call institutional money, yeah. pension funds, hedge funds, mm-hmm. endowments, long term money. Yeah. This, because it tends to be very illiquid for a long period of time. Right. This isn't the average investor that has, you know, five hundred thousand dollars. It's not that type of money. No. So the research note was titled View of the Recovery. And it was by Byron Wien, who's the head of Blackstone. Okay, so he mentioned um, about seven or eight points. I don't know if I'm going to go through all of them, but I'm going to go through and and Mark just chime in if anything stands out at you. Okay. Okay. So once again, the note was titled View of the Recovery. Here we go. First, we believe and this is all as in we this is Byron Wien and this is Blackstone. Okay. Yep. We believe a recovery is underway and we have seen the cycle low for the economy and the financial markets. We expect to see continued volatility. Agree or disagree? Agreed. Okay, let's keep going. Mm -hmm. We believe in the recovery will be a square root shaped. The early phase, probably lasting through the summer, will be V-shaped, followed by a gradual rise in the fall and beyond. Agree or disagree? I agree. And I think that would be the most healthy scenario. I would rather see that in some sideways chopping consolidation than just straight up. I would agree. And having that around September, October election time would not shock me. Yeah, yeah. All right, here we go. We believe the economy will not reach the level of 2019 GDP until 2022. It usually takes several years for a post-recession recovery to get back to the pre-recession pace. Um, I could kind of see both sides of it. I could see a, a, a big snapback just because of the liquidity that the Fed's providing and the stimulus from Congress. And, you know, if things do get a lot better in the next couple of months and people start hiring a lot quicker than they ever have before. Could come back quicker. I don't know, though. I, then that's one thing that I don't like to predict. Yeah. So that's just something that will be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah. In my in my mind, I'm thinking sometime in 2021, early 2022 would be my two cents. And mm-hmm. again, it's just my, my personal feeling. Yeah. We expect COVID-19 cases to increase during the recovery, but not to the level that would be considered a second wave requiring another lockdown. Agree or disagree? Agree, agree with that. We expect the unemployment rate to come down to 10%. It will remain that high because of the number of businesses that have permanently closed or gone bankrupt during the recession. More than 30 million were unemployed at the bottom and only 20 million will come back to work in the near term. I like how it says only. Yeah. Um, Companies have also learned during the lockdown that they can operate efficiently with fewer workers. I have an opinion. You go first. Agree or disagree? I mean, it's a good point. Um, about the companies that have gone bankrupt. But I think in times of stress and in times of panic, also coming out of that, you have very innovative thinkers and innovative entrepreneurs that start new businesses that these people could go and work for. So I I just see both sides of it. I think in the short term, I agree with them, yes. But over the long term, I think we will continue to see that unemployment number come down. I agree. One point I want to make is this last sentence, and I'll repeat it. Companies have also learned during the lockdown they can operate efficiently with fewer workers. I think people need to remember back to the great financial crisis. 
in the companies, in my opinion, that went lean and mean for as long as they could, in retrospect, were outperformed by companies that invested in talent and staff. And it was those talent and staff that went out and recruited some of their customers that they lost. Right. right. My opinion is this is a time to be investing in your business. This is not a time to be stingy with the budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that sometimes, you know, it's hard to make those sacrifices as a small business owner. You and I, Mark, are in that camp. And word of advice, you know, taking the playbook out of 08 and 09, invest in your business, invest in that staff, invest in their training, and it will pay dividends down the road. Yeah, no, I completely agree. All right, got a couple more for you. Ready? Mm-hmm. The lockdown has made consumers somewhat cautious. The savings rate will continue to be elevated. Travel will be restrained and the older vulnerable people will spend more time at home until a cure or vaccine is available. I agree with everything except the travel will be restrained. I think like me and you talk about all the time, there's going to be a lot of pent up demand for, um, you know, people getting out and spending money. And we were just talking about this yesterday on the plane that I think that the airlines are going to have a tough time bringing more of these flights back online with how they reduce their capacity so much. But you're going to have people that want to travel. Yeah. And I think in, in hindsight, you know, it takes time for them to take off capacity, add back on capacity, get people scheduled, make sure the planes have maintenance, mm-hmm. etc. And in my opinion, what's going to happen is they're not going to be able to add the capacity for the demand this summer. And if, if you want to buy a ticket soon, it's going to be astronomical. These flights are going to be chock full, mm-hmm. my opinion. But I think you're going to you're going to see the cost of a ticket if you want to travel this summer is going to be a lot higher than normal. Yeah. Yeah. Which people are not going to be happy not going to be happy about it. Yeah. All right. I'm almost done. While remote working and remote learning proved reasonably effective, we believe people want to interact and cross-fertilize ideas with each other. As a result, we expect offices and schools will resume face-to-face exchanges over the next year. I agree with that because, I mean, you have working parents that have full-time jobs that when all this stuff happened a couple months ago, they were working full-time from home. They were homeschooling. They were making food for their kids they were making sure you know their kids were were uh, functioning properly they were they were working three jobs essentially yeah and how is that sustainable over the long term it's and not- i can't i mean i i don't i don't have kids so i i can't ex- explain my experience of it but just from talking to people that is extremely extremely hard to do oh yeah and i think those type of people Uh, young professionals are going to be almost itching to go back to the office once things return to normal. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I know that I'm way more efficient in my office with my screens and my desktop than I am just on my laptop. My other point I want to make, and you and I have talked about it, and I agree with everything you said, is as, as you have turnover in these companies and you need collaboration, you need ideas, you need execution, you know, they got to be able to know their coworker, get to know their coworker. And it's really hard to do over a 30 minute Zoom call. Yeah, exactly. And especially for new hires. Right. So when you have a new hire, you bring them into the firm, you know, the first couple of weeks, it's you're getting to know everybody, you're getting to learn the culture. And I think that's really important for building strong relationships with coworkers and superiors is physically being there and talking with them in person. That's just my personal opinion. But 
you know, I just don't think it's the same doing everything virtually. I absolutely agree, Mark. And in, from an employer standpoint, you know, you got to build some loyalty with that staff member. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot easier for them to go to the next remote right. working employer. Yeah. Staff retention. If, if, if people are right and, and this work from home really, really blows up. You're going to see a lot more jumping. Oh yeah. A lot more turnover. Oh yeah. Last one. We believe we will make important progress in managing the symptoms of the disease before year end, but a vaccine will take time before it is developed, tested, manufactured in large quantities and available widely. Signs are encouraging that significant progress will take place before the end of 2021. Yeah, I agree with that. And again, you know, me and you have a tough time speaking to the vaccine thing because it's just like it's not our wheelhouse. No, but and we see speculation all over the board from near term to long term and how long it'll take and all that stuff. Right. But I'm an optimist, so I'd like to like to believe that. One thing I I do believe is that there's a significant amount of money uh, and manpower being spent on this. Yeah, for sure. I got two more kind of things I'll cover and they're going to be relatively quick, Mark. First one is a fun, interesting stat I think you'll enjoy. This is from uh, Cowan Research on June 22nd, sir. We got to bring those back. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Fun stats. Fun stats. Yeah. Alcohol sales are still up 20% year on year, but nothing like the week of March 23rd stock market low, where they spiked year over year like 60 or 70% on this chart. Wow. It's great. That's crazy. So, yeah, it just shows you that um, I think this is a sign of just people still um working from home yeah more access you know buying some more alcohol whatever their stress yeah and the last thing i got is a tweet um this one is from peter shack now he is a producer at cnbc he said and i quote with less than two weeks to go until the end of the quarter the dow is on track for its largest quarterly gain since q1 of 1987 the s p since q4 of 98 and the nasdaq since q4 of 01 that was on june 22nd Wow. Back to you, that's, my friend. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. So I guess we'll see what happens in the, the next couple days here before the end of the quarter. But yeah, I mean, it's 9, 10 a.m. here on Friday, uh, June 26th. We got uh, three full trading days left. Yes, we do. Um, so moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. Um, this comes from a blog post from our friend Ashby Daniels on June 13th titled The Fixed Income Conundrum. And some can make the argument that it isn't in quotes financial planning, but I think it it has a lot to do with that. So I'm I'm making it our topic of the week for this week. So I just wanted to read uh, a a few snippets from this post that we can discuss briefly, Matt. Let's do it. Um, And then again, we will link to this article in the show notes where you can go and read the whole article for yourself. So Ashby starts off by saying, here's where we are today. As I write this, the 10-year treasury yield stands at about 0.94% and the 30-year treasury stands at 1.65%. The Federal Reserve Board has a long-standing policy they have stated through the years of a target inflation rate of 2%. If 2% continues to be their target inflation rate, and if they achieve their goal, then the real return of the current long-term government bonds is destined to be negative. And this is before considering the taxability of the interest paid by the bonds. So remember, Matt, that treasury bonds are fully taxable at the federal level. That's They're not considered like a muni or anything like that. And it's interest, and that is considered ordinary income, which gets plowed on top of whatever other income you make, and it's going to be taxed at whatever highest rate you would fall into. Correct, correct. 
Um, so Ashby continues making matters worse. By the time these bonds would mature and your hard-earned money is returned to you, the inflation-adjusted principal has been cut in half. That's not an ideal scenario if you ask me, but nobody seems to be talking about it. So really, Matt, real returns in treasuries are arguably already negative if inflation is at 2%, even though interest rates are not yet negative. I'm with you on this. Right? Yeah. So just because, you know, the interest rate isn't negative doesn't mean the real return, which when we talk about real return, you take the interest rate and you subtract inflation from it. I think this is a phenomenal topic you're bringing up, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. Because a lot of people have a hard time associating I have, you know, this $100,000 sitting in this savings account earning a half a percent of this 100 grand sitting in a 10-year treasury earning 70 bips and they never look at the purchasing power that gets eroded over time mm-hmm. when it's earning that low of an interest rate. Right. And, you know, it it just goes back to the point that $100,000 today is not going to be worth $100,000 in 10 years. Yes. And I think where the financial planning side of it comes in is, you know, when you are doing a written financial plan, what is the proper inflation rate to illustrate going forward? Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is the proper return assumption you should use on your portfolio? And I think if this is an important item to bring up, Because in addition, there's a lot of people that um, tend to have what I call psychological numbers in their head of what they want to have in savings, either in treasuries or at the bank. And the problem with most investors, Mark, is the goalposts continually move. So in one year, that number's 10,000. Well, next thing you know, what's in savings and treasuries is 20. What becomes the new line in the sand? Mm -hmm. I got to keep at least 20 in there, Mark. Mm -hmm. Next thing we know, it's 50. Goalpost continues to move. And then if you look back, you go back 10 years and you look at the potential lost returns. And again, I'm not saying you have to invest all that, but there has to be a proper line in the sand. And what would be a good formula that you would recommend for an emergency fund for the average person? Um, I would probably say, you know, people, people always say between three and six months, but I think like four months is probably pretty good for most people. Oh, more like a three, but yeah, yeah, three, four months. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with liquidity is these days. Right. And how quick you can move money from one place mm-hmm. to the other. Yeah. You know, I, I, that's kind of where I'm at with that. Yeah. And he makes another good point too, that, you know, if people can't get these returns in treasuries, then they're going to go up the risk curve on the bond side and invest in high yield stuff. And the high yield stuff or quote unquote junk bonds are more correlated to stocks than treasuries are, right? Sure. And what's the reason to invest in bonds in the first place, right? Diversification. But, you know, now with interest rates being so low, Is there that much diversification in a lot of portfolios anymore? I don't know. Well, I heard someone say this once, and this might be controversial, but would you rather pick an XYZ S&P 500 stock that pays a 3% yield right now, very fictitious example, um, and is a company that you as an investor were comfortable with, that's how I'll say it, or would you rather buy a 10-year treasury at 70 basis points right now? And if your time horizon was long term, to me, it's a no brainer. Yeah, it's a stock. And that is part of what the Fed's trying to do. 
Yeah. And I think, again, and we've talked about this several times, but another byproduct of low interest rates is there's there's not a lot of other places that the average investor can go to other than the stock market to try to get these returns. That's right. And you think of, you know, historically, um, you know, savers that didn't say invest in stocks, it's tough for them to get returns to pay their living expenses right now unless they go up the risk curve a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So just food for thought but i know we've we've talked about the I'm low glad you interest rate today. topic that was a good article and ashby always has great stuff yeah he does he does so thank you for that ashby um anything else matt before we wrap up for this week no sir uh markets close next friday um so we got that coming up um i think uh, we'll be recording the podcast during our normal time either wednesday or uh thursday of next week and beyond that i hope everyone has a good holiday not a holiday weekend yet not yet but I hope they have a good weekend. Yeah, me too. But okay, well, we'll leave it there for this week. And thank you for listening to the 52nd episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. We hope you all have a wonderful and safe rest of the week and weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.